Good morning. My name is Michelle Jackson. My Derek, or my husband Derek, and I have attended Faith since the fall of 2006. Our daughter was married here. Other daughters still around here in town and teaching Sunday school right now. Um, I've served in a lot of different ministries here. I've been in women's ministry, the nursery, children's ministry, and on some committees and that type of thing. But since COVID, I've been really lazy, and I haven't come back to um, a regular thing of service. So I'm a little convicted about that this morning, and we'll see who I volunteer to later this week. Um, this morning, I'm going to share with you from Acts 18, verses 18 through 28. Paul returns to Antioch. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail from Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollo, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man and competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks, Michelle. Michelle's actually my neighbor, so Michelle, I can hook you up with some things to do around here. Actually, I see Michelle serve in a lot of different ways, so uh, she had not been unbusy. Hey, so it's uh, uh, obviously school is starting, and uh, I just want to take a moment before we look at the scriptures to uh, say thank you to those of you who are educators, whether it's homeschool preschool, elementary, high school, post-secondary education, uh, we want to pray for you. You, you. you matter, you're important, and uh, we, we, we think what you do is really, really important. And so as, as we're kind of moving into a new fall, just want to take a moment to, to pray for you. So would we pray together? Father, we do thank you for this uh, time of year as uh, people are going back to school. Um, God, we, we none of this would be possible without... Um, educators, whether that's in the home or in public school, private school, university, whatever. God, we are just so grateful for those in our midst here at Faith who you've called to this, uh, to this calling to uh, serve in this way, to give of themselves. And God, we know it's a, it's a busy, hard job. And uh, we just pray for each one that you would give them daily strength every day as they rise up and, and head into that educational environment, strengthen them. God, give them 
grace, give them wisdom, uh, give them love for the, those that they, they teach. And God, we pray that um, yeah, you would use them to shape and form uh, the, the young people that they, they educate. And uh, God, we pray that, uh, that academically uh, what needs to accomplish would, but, but also that just that there would be a sense of shaping the whole person as they model Christ in, in these various environments. For those that teach in, in school settings, we pray for great relationships with parents, with uh, just the, how the whole administration works together to, uh, to accomplish uh, education. And uh, so, God, we're just, uh, we, we lift up our teachers to you. Pray that you would bless them. And we're certainly mindful of each student going off to school from the, the preschool or going for the first time to that kindergartner to, to you know, uh, graduate degree in, at the university level. Father, we pray for each student that uh, this would be a great year of growth and learning, that uh, they really would flourish in whatever academic uh, educational setting uh, he or she is in. And so we pray that you would bless them as well. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, in uh, 2016, the word post-truth was named the Oxford Dictionary's uh, word of the year. That was a year when it started popping up in descriptions of political movements here in the United States and in Europe as well. Last year, um, so six years after that designation, the, there was an article in the Gospel Coalition uh, website that said this about our post-truth world. It said, in a post-truth world... Feelings trump facts, and personal subjectivity matters more than objective reality. Six years later, after the naming of that word, uh, we're swimming in post-truth cultural waters and trying with increasing difficulty to hold society together when even basic agreements over the nature of truth and reality are being contested. We, we feel this, right? We, we see this. We experience it literally in a, in a daily way. Um, in, the, in the news that we read, um, things we see posted on social media, uh, in the conversations that we hear. You ever heard this kind of conversation? Well, you know, you've got your truth. I've got my truth. Uh, it's, you know, truth's kind of just a subjective, whatever your perspective is, that's your truth. But I got my own truth. And that, I mean, that's kind of the, the world that we're in. Uh, basic agreements over the nature of truth, things that have been agreed upon for centuries are being contested, right? I mean, that's the world we live in. That's the cultural waters we are swimming in. And so people are trying to make their way through this life with no real foundation to truth, right? Uh, they're trying to find their way through their own wisdom through this life. And yet, God has spoken. God has revealed truth to us in the person of Jesus Christ and through the scriptures. We have, God has revealed to us truth about fundamental questions of life. Scripture reveals truth about, like, what is ultimate reality? Who is God and what is he like? What is the nature of mankind? What is sin? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is good? What is true? Where is hope found? Where is ultimate meaning and, and, and uh, purpose found? Apart from Scripture, uh, we have no real sufficient answer to any of these questions. And yet, we do have Scripture. 
God has spoken. He's revealed truth to us. So Jesus talks a lot about truth. Uh, Jesus says things like, we will know the truth and it will set us free, John 8, 32. He prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth and that God's word is truth, John 17, 17. He said that the spirit is the spirit of truth and he will guide us into all truth, John 16, 13. Paul called the church the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3, 15. Paul also said this about truth in Ephesians 4.15. He said, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Paul's point is is that, that we need to be truth speakers with each other. We need to speak truth to each other. Uh, and this has always been the case. But how much more in the world that we now live in? We need to speak truth to each other so that we grow up in Christ. We need to speak truth to each other so we stay rooted and grounded in what is true. And we will do that best as we together, as we collectively seek to mature in the Word. That's what we're going to look at today, this this whole idea of maturing in the Word. We're going to spend most of our time focusing on Apollos uh, and kind of his own process of maturing, but I want to make a few comments about Paul, the end of his second missionary journey as he returns to Acts before we get to Apollos. And so uh, let's look at a couple things in terms of Paul here. Let me read verse 18 again. It says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrea, he had his... He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And so if you were here last week, we saw how Paul had that encounter with the Jews in Corinth. They strongly opposed him, and, and yet and he was fearful, and God showed up and encouraged him. And Gallo, the proconsul, ruled, and you know, I'm not going to pay attention to the Jews. And so uh, his opportunity to continue to minister there um, continued. So he stayed many days longer, but eventually he became convinced that God was leading him to travel to Syria, to return to Antioch from which he had been sent out. So he departs. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. These were the the tent makers that had come from Rome that he had initially lived with when he came to Corinth. Luke gives us this interesting tidbit that Paul had cut his hair because he was under a vow. As a, uh, a Jewish Christian, Paul continued to live out his Christian faith in some of the Jewish forms. And so, uh, this was something Jewish people would do, make vows. And sometimes when you read through the songs, Psalms, it talks about, I will fulfill my vow, right, in the, the house of the Lord. And so uh, they would make vows um, for such things as thankfulness for God's past blessings or maybe in the midst of a trial or difficulty. They would pray that when God would bring them safely through that they would give thanks. And so it's possible that Paul, during that interaction with the 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 Jews in Corinth, the opposition, he'd made some kind of vow that, God, I'm going to praise you when you deliver um, Whatever the case, he, he ends his vow by cutting his hair, which he would have presented in the temple in Jerusalem along with the sacrifice. On the way to Syria, he stops by Ephesus. We read in verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. It's, it's kind of interesting because time and time again, he goes into synagogues and, and they're not very interested. And here's one where they are very interested and they want him to stay. 
And it's just really clear that God is directing him to return to Syria. And so if God wills, he says, I will return to you. And, and God does will and he will return. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there and he sets sail for Syria. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So when he went up and greeted the church, uh, probably referring to the church in Jerusalem, he probably uh, fulfilled his vow there. And then it says he went down to Antioch. And if you look at your map, Antioch's north, which you tend to think going up, but really everything was down from Jerusalem, right? And so uh, he ends up in Antioch. And uh, probably was a time of reporting what, what God had been doing among the Gentiles, a time of refreshment, encouragement, a time of reconnecting to the people that he knew there. And uh, it's an interesting thing. We, as a church, as we send out missionaries, uh, we love this pattern. We try to follow this pattern that we love when missionaries can come back and, and we can hear reports of how God has been at work in their, their field. And uh, we, we love to, to create space for refreshment and encouragement and, and connection. So we've really tried to follow this, this model here that, that Paul models. Verse 23, um, Paul then begins his third missionary journey. It says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so Paul returns to, to the churches that he's established on his first missionary journey, visited him on his second missionary journey. And so he was focused not only on proclaiming Christ where he was not known, he cared deeply that there were healthy churches with growing disciples. And so he goes back and, and he, he, he's making sure he's strengthening the disciples because those are the ones that are going to carry on the work, right, in those, those communities, local churches with, with growing disciples. Eventually, he'll make it back to Ephesus, but between his departure and his return, a man named Apollos shows up, and he begins to preach there. And uh, the story of Apollos, it really interrupts the flow of uh, Luke's uh, narrative because it's all been about Paul and and his movement and what Paul's doing, but he interrupts to introduce us to Apollos. I think it's because Apollos becomes a very important figure in the, the church in Corinth, and, and you read about him in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. And so he introduces us to Paul, Apollos, and, and in these verses, we see how Apollos matured in the Word. And, and I think it's a great model for any who teaches but as I mentioned earlier, we are all to be true speakers to each other. We all need to be maturing in the word. And so I think there's a model here for, for all of us, really. So, verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So he's from Alexandria, North Africa. He's an Egyptian. Um, Alexandria was uh, eventually became become kind of the intellectual center of Christianity. So many great teachers and thinkers came out of there. It's where the Septuagint was translated, the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek. That happened in Alexandria. So it's a very important city. Um, but because most history that we know about the movement and expansion of Christianity is, is about Asia and Europe, we really don't know a lot about this history. But... but uh, uh, yeah, we don't know how the gospel came to Alexandria necessarily. Um, in, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Luke stated that there were people from Egypt there, Jews from Egypt, and so maybe there were people who had become believers on that day and returned. One way or the other, Apollos has become a believer in Jesus. Luke goes on to describe him this way. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He was competent in the scriptures, competent in the scriptures. The NIV says he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. When he shows up in Ephesus, when he begins teaching there, he's got this solid grasp, this understanding of the flow and the truths and the message of the Old Testament scriptures. How does someone become competent in the scriptures? How do we become competent in the scriptures? Think about Jesus in the Great Commission. You know, he said, as we make disciples, we are to teach them everything he commanded. And so there's a role of teaching. Instruction is a very important part of how we become competent in the scriptures. We need good teaching. We need, need to receive that. And uh, Apollos had done that. He had been instructed, it says, in the way of the Lord. He'd been instructed. He'd received good teaching. And though it doesn't necessarily say it in the text, my assumption is he also had to work really hard at it. He, he wasn't just hearing. He was applying himself. He was, he was thinking about it. He was contemplating. He was integrating the scriptures into his life. He was, he was uh, meditating on it. And, and so uh, as a result of this, he was one who spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Here's the point. Maturing in the word, it comes from receiving instruction and doing the work of personally seeking to understand God's word. We really need both, right? We need good instruction. But we also have to apply ourselves to learn, to grow, to understand, to apply it to our lives. Oh, how we need people who are competent in the scriptures. We need people who are competent in the scriptures. We need a church full of people who can speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. In the church, in our homes, as our groups gather, as friends meet together. We need people who are competent. But this will only happen as we each seek to mature in the word. As we each apply ourselves to growing and maturing in the scriptures. This is not just for, it is for those who stand up front, but it's not just for those who stand up front. It's for all of us. In Colossians 3.16, Paul writes this to the church. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so Paul wants a church where the word of Christ dwells richly. And how will it dwell richly among us? By it individually dwelling richly in us, by each of us maturing in the word. That's how you have a church in which the word is dwelling richly so that we can teach and admonish one another. And so we all, may we all work hard at maturing by receiving good teaching and then doing the work to understand, to apply it to our lives. Now, Paulus, Luke tells us, was not only competent in the scriptures, he was also a gifted teacher. It says he's eloquent, he's a good communicator, he's persuasive. Uh, He's described as fervent in spirit, which can have the sense of he teaches with passion, have a sense he'd be a great teacher to sit under, right? That phrase can also be translated fervent in the spirit, and so Luke may be indicating he he was gifted by the spirit 
for the teaching role that, that he was involved in. So he's competent in the scriptures. He's gifted as a teacher. But Luke also tells us that Apollos has a deficiency in his knowledge. He knew only the baptism of John. In other words, he didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He did not, did not know about Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit and all that that meant, the significance of that. Because of that, some have thought, well, surely he could not have been a, a believer if, if he didn't know about that. Surely he was a, just a, a faithful Jew looking forward to the hope of a coming Messiah. But I believe he was a, a believer. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, right? So I think he understood the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but maybe the gospel had come to him between the ascension of Jesus before Pentecost had happened. He just had not had that teaching. One way or the other, he only knew about the baptism of John. He had accurate information about Jesus. He just didn't have the whole picture of Jesus and all that he had brought in terms of the Spirit. There was need for growth. And uh, how that came to be, uh, we don't know. But what we know is he taught accurately the things he did know. He just didn't know everything he needed to know. And so in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So like Paul, he goes into the synagogue. He begins to preach there. He speaks boldly. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila are there. They hear him. And they become aware that he has some deficiency in his knowledge. And I love what they do. They don't interrupt him. Uh, they don't confront him in public. Rather, with gentleness and grace, they took him aside, it says. And that can have the sense of taking him aside into their home. It's possible they, they welcome him into their home. They kindly sit down and explain to him the way of God more accurately. They teach him. They speak truth to him in love. And whether this was one encounter, whether this was multiple times sitting with him, we don't know. But what we know is that God used this couple to help Apollos become an even better teacher. Their feedback was part of his maturing in the word. As you think about this and what Apollos is modeling here, this is pretty interesting because you, you, when we think about teachers who are really well educated, who are very skillful, who are gifted and uh, have experience at it, sometimes they're not always the most humble. They're not always the most teachable, right? And yet Apollos, he's humble. He has a teachable spirit. He allowed Priscilla and Aquila to pour into his life. Because of that, he matured in the word and he became a better teacher. So here's the point. Maturing in the word comes from having a humble heart. Maturing in the word is greatly helped by having a humble, teachable heart. No matter how long I've been a believer, no matter how long you've been a believer, none of us have arrived. We all have room for growth, right? We all still have things that we need to learn. And Apollos models that for us. We are all still in process. So when you think about the word and your engagement with it, your knowledge of it, are you humble when it comes to the word? Do you have a posture? Do you have a heart posture of knowing that you still have things to learn? 
Are you open to instruction? Are you open to correction from others in the body of Christ? Maybe even from people who have less status or education or gifting than you. This is what Apollos models. He matured in the word because he had a humble heart that could receive their correction and their teaching. And I I think it's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ at work as a gifted teacher receives instruction from these tent-making refugees from Rome. Certainly took humility on his part, but possibly took courage on their side, right? I mean, think about Priscilla and Aquila. They could have thought, you know, who are we? We're, we're, we're tent makers by profession. That's what we do. Who are we to correct and train this educated, learned man from Alexandria and all the wisdom that comes from that city? But they didn't think that. They had been discipled by Paul. They saw deficiencies in Apollo's teaching, and they were willing to say something. They spoke the truth in love. You may not have the same education or training that another person in the church has. You may not have the same gifting. You may not be an upfront person, but you are needed. You are needed. The body of Christ is to work together to build each other up, and that's what we see here. Priscilla and Aquila understood some things that Apollos did not, and and, and without their courage uh, to speak to Apollos, he would not have been as effective. Their hidden private work with Apollos was vital. It was important. The church needs hidden encouragers. The church needs those who will gently correct and instruct. All of us who teach here at Faith, we all would welcome this. We all welcome this. We welcome correction when that's needed. Some of you have played this role in my life. You've raised questions about something I've taught. You've offered a different perspective. You've given me insight into things uh, that I don't know, and that's been an important part of my own maturing. And uh, hopefully I've been humble as people have come to me, Um, but we all need that. We all need to desire that. Maturing in the Word comes from having a humble heart. The next thing that Luke tells us is that eventually Apollos feels called to go to a different place, to Achaia. And so we read in verse 27, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so he's going back to the province where Corinth was located. He's going to Corinth, and and it's possible, I assume, Priscilla and Aquila had told him about Paul's encounter there, the opposition of the Jews, how it created fear in Paul's life even. And Apollos feels called to go there, to that place. It seems he's gifted and fit to to minister in that setting. And so he goes, now more mature in the word, and it says he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And he did this by powerfully refuting the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So as you think about Apollos, as a younger man, he'd received instruction in the way of the Lord. He had sat under good teaching. He'd also worked hard at this. He had matured in the Word through his own personal discipline, his own work to understand and apply the Scriptures to his life. 
He had matured in the word by having this posture of humility that would let others speak into his life and receive correction and instruction. And here's the thing. All of this was not just for him. All of this was not just for his benefit. It was about the fruit that it would bear in other people's lives. And so too with us. Maturing in the word, it's all about the fruit that it will bear in others' lives. Is it good personally when we mature in the word? Yes, it, it is good for us. It, is, it will benefit us, but it's also for the fruit that it will bear in other people's lives. And here's the thing. If we're the kind of church where each of us are seeking to mature in the word and, and it's bearing fruit in the lives of others in the, the church, then we will be a stronger, more effective church proclaiming truth in this post-truth culture. We'll be able to speak into the, to the, the fundamental questions of life in a much more effective way if we're collectively doing this because of the fruit that it's bearing each other's lives inside and outside the church. And so may we each be people who are seeking to, to mature in the word, continuing to receive good instruction, working hard at it personally, May we have open, humble hearts, postures of knowing we all have to keep learning. May we become competent in the scriptures that bear fruit in a way that bears fruit in the lives of others. As we, we kind of come to an end, I want to give you two questions to ponder this week, two very simple questions to reflect on. First is this, am I, re, am I maturing in the word? Am I maturing in the word? Am I growing in my knowledge? Am I growing in my application of the word? Am I maturing in the word? Ask God about that. Take some time to think about that. The other question is this. What changes do I need to make to become someone who is maturing in the word? Or maybe someone who's maturing uh, better in the word. Maybe, maybe you see some, but you know you, you could excel still more. And so what changes do I need to make to be someone who's maturing in the word? Logan talked earlier about rooted in groups, and, and one of the reasons we do groups, as, as Steve said, is not to keep you off the streets at night. It's, uh, it's for your growth, right? I mean, it's helping us be in a context where we're studying the Scripture in conversation with others, where we're, we're speaking truth, right? Giving and receiving truth. We need to be in that kind of setting. It's part of how we mature in the Word. And so that might be your action point, uh, you know, getting connected to a group of people that are in the Scriptures and you're having conversations around the Scriptures. It might just be that, that there's personal practices that you need to establish or reestablish, personal time in the Word. Um, just daily coming and reading God's Word, reflecting on it, meditating on it, memorizing it, spending time listening uh, to God's Word. Maybe it's memorizing Scripture. Uh, what is it that would be helpful to you? What one thing would make a world of difference in your own maturing in the Scriptures? It might be that you realize what I need more than anything else is to get rid of some distractions. Like there's this and that, that that's just distracting me. It's taking me away from time in the Word. But take some time this week to think about, am I maturing and what can I do to mature in God's Word? Let God speak to you about that. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that uh, we are not alone in this world. We are not alone to kind of figure things out 
to, to figure out what truth is, but, but you are truth, and you have sent your son into this world, and he is the way and the truth and the life. You've given us your spirit, the spirit of truth who guides us into truth. You have given us your word. You have revealed truth to us. May we be people who are, are growing in this. May we be people who are growing in our knowledge of the word, maturing in the word. Help us to be teachable people that, that receive good instruction, that receive input from others, that are doing personal uh, work to, to engage the scriptures, apply it to our lives, and, and to grow in all of this. May we be a church that shines brightly truth for each other and for the world around us, for the good of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.